welcome to this bonus edition of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, uh, and uh, I'm taking advantage of the fact that I am here at Aspen talking about Homeland Security, and in the meanwhile, back in the sweltering east, uh, uh, the entire country seems to be melting down over the DNC hack uh, and the role of the Russians and their motivations uh, in doing so. So I am taking advantage of the fact that I'm here with two people who together must have uh, something close to 75 years of um, intelligence experience. Uh, um, John McLaughlin, who was the acting uh, uh, director of the CIA, the uh, uh Deputy Director for Central Intelligence for many years uh, and is now a senior fellow at SICE. Uh, and Charlie Allen, who started at the CIA in 1958, is that right? Sure. Uh, and among other things, um, uh, in his first uh, encounter with the Soviets uh, was actually reading the intelligence that was uh, obtained from the Berlin Tunnel that we dug under uh, the wall. To, uh, <laughs> so, I, uh, the people who really have, have devoted a career to understanding um, the Russian approach to intelligence and uh, uh, the question, I guess, that I'll, I'll just start out with uh, is... There's a lot of speculation that the Russians intruded into the network, two different uh, uh, organizations, that they stole all these documents, that they released them, and that they are doing so in order to affect the politics of the United States. And I, I, my question is, would they really, do they really have the boss to do that? Yes, uh, they certainly do, whether they did it directly with their own Integrated teams are hired Russian hackers who are really quite good uh, that are there for hire. Uh, we've seen repeatedly a very certain ruthlessness, whether it's the KGB or today the SVR for their external service or their FSB, which is their internal service. They're quite ruthless. On a personal basis, these intelligence officers can get very charming. You can sit and talk to them and enjoy their company. But they're the, the structure and the organization of the state and the, and the autocracy in which they operate is quite ruthless. John, what do you think? Well, first, of course, it's important uh, that we, like good tele intelligence officers, say that we don't know all the facts we yet. Don't. There is an investigation underway. Uh, in discussing a possible Russian role, we are essentially speculating and... Um, Although I guess I would say there's pretty good evidence uh, from uh, internals of this, uh, from, the, from CrowdStrike and others, that the Russians were in the network. There is less good but some forensic evidence that Russian speakers prepared the documents for release. And there is only speculation to support the idea that they're doing it to affect our uh, uh, our political process. Oh, agree to all of that. I just wanted to make the point that uh, my career has taught me that sooner or later something comes out that you're not anticipating or don't know. But having said all of that, um, it's quite plausible, credible to me that the Russians would do this. Uh, one of the things about their intelligence services is this. They tend to concentrate on operations and they have a long history of doing covert action quite skillfully, sometimes clumsily, but often very skillfully. And uh, 
and have done this quite successfully. So the idea that they would want to do this is not at all surprising. And on that level, of course, one could view it simply as an intelligence operation that was successful. And, you know, while regretting it and so forth, you can say, well, they did an intelligence operation. If they did it for the purpose of interfering in some way in our political process, whether they were attacking the DNC or the Republicans, that would be deplorable and would be, you know, a step beyond what typically you would shrug off as an intelligence operation. That is an intrusion into our political process and not to be tolerated. So, you know, one of the few institutions that seems to have come through the entire collapse of the Soviet Union and the Yeltsin era and into the Putin era is the KGB. It's almost as though it's the one place that still has a culture that it created in the 70s and 80s. I think that's very true. And, you know, our friend Mr. Putin, as a lieutenant colonel in the KGB in Dresden, ran operations in East Germany, particularly against foreigners going into East Germany. And he brought that mentality when he went to St. Petersburg to join with Sobchak, who became mayor of St. Petersburg, and launched his career. He resigned from the KGB, but it was a very painful exercise for him. But when Yeltsin was pushed out in the late 90s, Mr. Putin was there, and the people he brought to the Kremlin were fellow intelligence officers with whom he was very comfortable, many of whom remain in very senior positions today. It's very natural, very comfortable. I think Charlie makes an important point that it matters that Putin is the president of Russia. I recall when the Soviet Union broke up, lots of strange things happened in the intelligence world. For one thing, the KGB had branches all over the Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, Ukraine was a separate country, Azerbaijan was a separate country, Uzbekistan was a separate country, and so forth. And in many cases, the KGB people simply stayed where they were and became the core of intelligence services in those countries. And some of them went back to Moscow, but the core in Moscow remained the same. And then the KGB split into two distinct organizations, the SVR, which does foreign intelligence, and the FSB, which does basically domestic security. Not quite analogous to our FBI, but roughly speaking, in terms of its mission, not its methods. And the reason I say it matters that Putin is the leader here, if you went back to the Yeltsin period from 1991 to 1999. I actually haven't studied the Soviet Union my entire life, but there have been episodes of intensive involvement. In that period, I felt without being able to prove it that the services then were trying to find their way in a new country, would be the one way to put it, that Yeltsin was not an intelligence officer. I
we don't have the budget we need. Um, we're, we're our recruiting operation of employees is not what it used to be. All of this could have been eyewash for me, right? But but it I could also mean that what happened is Putin came back and suddenly they're back, they're revived, they're very grateful, uh, and he's a an enthusiastic consumer of what they do. That's my point. In other words. Uh, all of a sudden, the guy who's running the country is from that culture, uh, trusts those people, um, over time has become, um, has tightened up things in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, the media, uh, presence of foreign uh, organizations, non-governmental organizations and so forth. Uh, life for such organizations has become a little harder. And all of that requires a security focus internally that is more developed by necessity than it was in, say, the Yeltsin period, which was glasnost, at least in the early days of Yeltsin, was glasnost on steroids. Right. With the media wide well, they, open. They opened some of their files. Files were open. Media was, was open and uh, more or less doing whatever it wanted to do and uh, rapid privatization occurred. This is not to say intelligence wasn't important in that era, but uh, Russia was in considerable chaos for a good, good part of a decade. Putin comes in. His job clearly is to stabilize the country after a period of chaos. We have to remember that Yeltsin actually apologized to the country in his last speech to the country, saying, I'm sorry to leave such a mess in so many words. <laughs> right. Putin comes in, and his job is to stabilize the country. We, we sometimes fail to understand the importance of that to Russians. Yes. For whom life became more predictable, uh-huh. more stable, and therefore his popularity rose and so forth. And as his time has gone on as president, prime minister, president again, uh, Russia has become, uh, not the Soviet Union, but has become a more controlled society. Well, and he's done it in large part by effectively controlling the kinds of information that is flowing, including over the internet, and by by, uh, mobilizing a a social media campaign of people who will turn, instead of censoring uh, websites, they may just turn them into pits of vituperation. Uh, So you just don't want to read them anymore. Uh, He's gotten good at soft authoritarianism rather than the the harsh authoritarianism of Stalin. Uh, And I I guess one of my questions is, is he starting to apply the same techniques that work so well for him at home to us? He's engaged a bit in Muscarovka back in the Sochi Olympics back in Mm -hmm. February 2014. He put this wonderful face on the world with he and his athletes performing. Uh, really a wonderful, they pulled off the Olympics. It was superhuman, well. one, one might say. It was pretty well controlled. And then two weeks later, you know, he, he, he sends his little green man without insignias yes. into Sevastopol, into Crimea. And by the time we really, the president went on the air, I think on the 28th of February, 2014, and he said, you know, this is wrong, this shall not stand. Well, it was a fait accompli, essentially. Mm-hmm. So and, uh, and, uh, and, and then, of course, 
the active measures and the support of the separatists in Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, began and continues to this day. There's a kind of tactical boldness that is surprising. I suspect in some ways he's emulating us, that he thinks that this is what we did in Kosovo or Libya. We just said, we're going in, you won't stop us, and they couldn't. And he says, well, okay, two can play that game. So this may be, his willingness to take risks is something he's learned, that there are things you can do, and if you can get away with it for the first three weeks, maybe you can get away with it forever. Yes, we knew who the little green men were, and we were able to find out exactly what detachments they belonged to. But he did the same thing in the Middle East. Fifty years ago, in the 1973 war, the Russian presence, the Soviet presence, was marginalized at the end of the 1973 war, the October war of 1973. Then he moves rather quickly in to start enhancing air bases in Syria. And then, of course, he moved in fighter aircraft and close support aircraft, ships offshore, air defenses. And then on the 29th of September, I guess 2015, he starts actually bombing. And he starts bombing not the people that the United States or the West would want. He starts bombing people that the West is training to fight Bashar al-Assad and ISIS. So given that he has this tactical boldness and a sense that there's a lot he can get away with and he seems to have some idea, he's a pretty good student of the West in terms of what we'll tolerate and what we won't. If we think that this is just unacceptable, hacking our political parties and then releasing stuff maybe in an effort to help one candidate or the other, it's pretty obvious to me at least that the next step, which I'm sure the Russians aren't unwilling to do, is to smuggle some fake documents in among the real ones and let them be discovered later and turn into a bigger scandal than it warrants. What do we have to do to persuade him this is a bad idea? Well, you know, Russia is already very heavily sanctioned. Yes. The ruble is at an all-time low. The average household is now paying 2 to 3 percent more for goods than they used to. Businesses, capital flight is underway, all of that. So he's pretty heavily sanctioned now. I suppose you could tighten those sanctions or increase them by focusing them more than they currently are on things like, you know, some of Putin's personal finances or I don't know precisely what we've done with banking regulations, but we can do things with banking regulations that are really very hurtful to a foreign economy. Now, all that said, I think we would probably find it frustrating to try and take those kinds of actions. I'm not persuaded that they truly deter Russia because doing this kind of thing, that is covert action, intelligence operations, is too much to say that it's just in the DNA, but it is something that is just part of their national foreign policy intelligence toolkit. They're going to do these things. I don't know that further sanctions would make a big difference, but if it is ultimately established that this is what they did, certainly the escalation of things could be a stern diplomatic protest. 
Did you have to go and tell them? So what we used to call it, the marshmallow. <laughs> you got to show them that we know you did this, yes. and this is why we know you did this, without going into great uh, methodological detail, um, and and find something that uh, at least convey the message that you know if this were to continue, or if we were to discover further evidence of this, um, uh, we, we will not. Uh, sit idle by it, be careful not to draw a red line that we won't enforce. You know, but, but more broadly than that, think about where all of this is going. Uh, one thing after another is occurring. Uh, the incursion into Crimea, the incursion into Ukraine more broadly, the uh, buzzing of our aircraft and uh, ships at sea, um, and, and our response to all of those things. Um, Moving the largest forward deployment mm-hmm. of NATO forces uh, that we've had since the Cold War, and so forth and so on. There is a kind of dynamic here that's taking over. That, if you were to look at this from thirty thousand feet, starts to feel like we're moving back toward a Cold War with the Russians. And at some point, I think we need to ask ourselves, where do we want all of this to go? Where does he want it all to go? And um, you know, as I've said to you personally before, the next administration probably needs to step back from all of this. I wouldn't use the term reset. No, I don't but, you would. But, I would, but I would say step back from it and do a serious evaluation of what kind of relationship do we want with the Russians? Do we, do we want to find ways to talk to them comparable to the way we talked to them during the Cold War when? They did pose an existential threat to us. Their missiles could hit our cities in mm-hmm. half an hour or so. And yet we found ways to uh, reduce those uh, nuclear weapons and deal with them, if not amicably, at least sensibly, on issues that divided us. And somehow this has all crept up on us. Right, when, while we were celebrating the end of the Cold when War. We were celebrating the end of the Cold War, and we're enlarging NATO, and... Uh, you know, we're feeling good about uh, all of that, and all of a sudden we find ourselves dealing with what Charlie referred to, basically, is uh, a hybrid warfare, or gray warfare, which we're not we're not well equipped to deal with because it's a combination of things that that we don't normally field. You know, conventional forces, special forces, information operations, cyber, uh, psychological operations, and some dissembling mm-hmm. thrown over the whole thing. You know, I don't have anyone in Ukraine. Well, we see them. No, they're not there. Right. Uh, so uh, Americans don't do that as comfortably. And right. so I think this has kind of crept up on us, and we need to really ask ourselves, where do we want it to go, and what influence can we have over where, where it's going? And what do we want? Is there an end point that we can visualize that's either better or worse than where we are now? So, so Charlie, uh, uh, part of this is uh, we may know what we want, but uh, we have to make Putin want it too. Uh, yes, what, what will <laughs> truly deter yeah. Mr. Putin? It's, it, and that's that's one uh, response that the United States and the West has yet to come together strategically on. Putin, <laughs> despite his economic problems, remains popular. I don't. Yeah. I think he's less popular, but there's a, a very rich vein of nationalism. They they felt that when NATO moved uh, its borders a thousand miles to the east, 
it played directly into the extreme paranoia that we see in the intelligence services of Russia. And they tend not to have the kind of filters and weighty thinking by all sorts of analysts that the United States has or the British have with their Joint Intelligence Committee. It goes pretty raw into Putin. And my guess is that there's a long history of telling the boss what he wants to hear. There certainly is. We're being surrounded. The Baltics, which the great marshals of Russia always said were a buffer, are now NATO members. Well, they're important NATO members, and they're under pressure. There's a lot of active measures or covert actions, as the Russians call them, in the Baltics. And they look at Poland with disdain. We have not taken the kinds of strong measures. I believe what we've done in sending additional battalions and stationing them in the three Baltics and in Poland, where there's a very strong sense that the West is not, and the United States in Warsaw is not really strongly supporting Poland. It has too many memories of Russian invasions. I think that it's going to take, and Putin, in my view, and John may disagree, is more of a tactician. He's an opportunist. He works at a tactical level. He doesn't always think, but he does pull back when he's confronted. So were you surprised that apparently the people who were looking for intrusions found two separate Russian intrusions, one that they attributed to, I think, a successor of the GRU, and one presumably to a successor of the SVR? Does that completely uncoordinated set of intrusions seem, I mean, I realize it could happen, but would happen rarely in the U.S. Is it more common in Russia? Well, it may be coordinated. That's right. You find one and you kick him out, and the other guys just stay behind. Multiple points at a time. Yeah, I mean, the GRU has, if things haven't changed since I last knew this, they have more responsibility for communications-related intelligence than other organizations. You know, I think we have to realize that, going back to the larger issue of Russia, that in some ways, not perfectly, but this is analogous to the interwar period of the last century. As then, we're dealing with the psychology of a defeated power. Yes. And they are profoundly upset with feelings of disrespected, that they suffered unfairly, and yet every gesture to make them feel better is treated as weakness on the other side that needs to be exploited. That's exactly right. That's a very good way to put it. If you go back to the interwar period, Hitler regarded the Versailles Treaty as a stab in the back. In modern terms, what the Russians would say, not agreeing with this or knowing what the diplomatic record will show, but the Russians would say the stab in the back now was that you promised us you wouldn't enlarge NATO. They believe that we did somehow in the, you know, back around the time of the Berlin Wall when we were eager to have Germany united, remember East Germany? That's right. And we were eager to have that united Germany in NATO, 
They think that we, and I don't know the facts, diplomatic historians will have to sort this out because there's conflicting testimony. They think we promised them we wouldn't enlarge NATO beyond that. That's very good. That's very correct, John. Absolutely. And they're absolutely right. We did move it 1,000 miles without a lot of sensitivity to Moscow. So my point is, it's the psychology of a defeated power. They lost a country, and then they lost their alliance, while our alliance, the Warsaw Pact, while our alliance grew. And this is not to apologize for them at all, but just to say, you have to think about who are you dealing with here. And I think what Putin is trying to do is to reestablish a sphere of influence, show that Russia must be respected, and maintain very tight control in his own country with whatever means he needs to do that. Because, you know, Russia's changing. I mean, when the protests were occurring in 2012 over what many Russians thought was a rigged election. Right. Now, bear in mind, when we talk about Russia in this sense, we're talking mostly about Moscow and St. Petersburg. Right, and the relatively wealthy and middle class parts, too. But people were holding up signs saying, we have brains. So he knows there is out there in the elite of Russia some understanding that the rest of the world has a different governance system than they may be living with. And yet, you know, I think what I read between the lines of what many Russians say is, yeah, we don't like everything about Putin, but it's better than anything else that we can imagine having right now. So I want to take this back to the 30s because I think there's two elements worth, two additional ways in which we can draw out that analogy. First, the 30s saw the development of long-range bombers. And for the first time, people realized that the next war was not going to be fought in the trenches, but was going to be fought at home where their women and children lived. And that was a technological change where the attacker had all the advantages and the defender was mostly helpless. And people realized that and they thought it was going to be an ugly, ugly war. And the party that got best at long-range bombing and using air power was, in fact, the defeated power from the last war. So we should not be surprised that they are doubling down on this kind of tactic because it seems to allow them to get back all that they lost when they lost the Soviet Union. And the other observation is, at the end of the day, they should have spent less time psychoanalyzing Hitler and more time just saying, hell no, to one of his measures. We just need to find a place to draw that line. It's important to remember that Hitler ultimately went too far. Yes, he did. In other words, when he took over the Sudetenland, he got away with it. When he did the Anschluss with Austria, he got away with it. And Germans, I just finished a history of the Third Reich, Germans generally thought this guy seems to know what he's doing. Then he did the Czechoslovakia and again got away with it for a while. And then he did France. And he got away with that, actually, too. I think it was only when he went after the Soviet Union that things got bad. He got away with that, although at some point the Brits came into it. Winston Spencer Churchill was the one who was the strongest. But my point is, 
there's got to be a line here somewhere. Well, if we can if we can get into fight a land war with China, we yeah. that would that would be exactly right. I don't think we've clearly <laughs> defined in our own minds where is that line beyond yeah. which and he can't go. Yeah, and he's put sort of unrestricted cyber as a new domain for uh, as a means of showing that Russia still has a lot of punch and a lot of clout, and if it is proved that uh, Russian hackers. Government-sponsored uh, did this uh, activity in the Democratic National Committee. It has strong implications for all parties, for our electoral process at every level. So it's a, it's a very dangerous step. Yeah. Whoever did this. So, Charlie Allen, uh, uh, John McLaughlin, this was a great conversation and very illuminating about uh, um, at least possible Russian motives in this episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. All right. Thank you. This has been the Aspen Bonus Episode 127 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Don't get used to it because we are definitely taking August off, uh, but uh, we still welcome commentary uh, at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and of course, we welcome good reviews on uh, the uh, podcast aggregator of your choice. Join us again in September as we once again provide insights into technology, law, policy, and government.